0: I am David. I'm a compulsive overeater and bulimic. Hi. David. Thank you, Susan, for having me. Um, it's really good to be here. I just got back from New York, and uh, it's really, really a miraculous, a miraculous trip. Um, it's funny because every holiday in my disease was getting progressively worse, and every holiday in recovery gets progressively better. And um, just to qualify, I have four years of abstinence, and that's no binging, no purging, no flour, no sugar. And um, I eat three meals a day with nothing in between. I have a sponsor who has a sponsor, and I have sponsors who sponsor. And um, my abstinence and my sobriety is the most important thing in my life without exception. Um, I got into New York at 5 in the morning, Sunday morning, and took a cab straight to a meeting. And um, met a fellow who is in, from L.A. And, um, you know, I jump into program wherever I am no matter what. And, um, you know, by the end of my five days in New York, I was doing service. I was getting outreach calls from people in New York. Um, I was qualifying at a meeting. It's just like what I put in is what I get out. And, um, you know, I couldn't go a day without binging or purging when I came in. I actually had the journal entry from uh, the day before I got abstinent. And it's from 3.20 p.m., so there was a lot more binge to, ha- to be had. Um, But this is where I was at at 320. It says, another binge today, another wasted day. Bag of dried mangoes, 540 calories. Bag of banana chips, 2,400 calories. Bag of freeze-dried bananas, 540 calories. Bag of freeze-dried pineapples, 520 calories. Bag of dried pineapple rings, 720 calories. One whole jar of almond butter, 2,660 calories. 7,380 calories. I'm lonely as F-U-C-K. Probably because I hate myself. I'm sitting at the Santa Monica Pier watching everyone around me laugh and smile. Why is everyone happy except for me? Why can't I be normal? Why do I have to eat 7,000 calories in a sitting? I hate myself. I pray that one day my food will be moderate and clean. I think I want to run the marathon. I think it would be good for me to set a goal and finally reach it. Mm. I need help. I'm so tired of living. I'm so tired of being alone. And, um, I'm feeling pretty emotional tonight because I was just back in New York, and it's where I came into program six years ago. And, um, being back there with a new pair of glasses, I really see that I didn't live a day when I was living in New York. I was in New York for 15 years, and I didn't live a day there. And, um... You know, I'm just praying to my higher power to, like, help me lean into this, like, vulnerability and just help me be of service tonight. Um, you know, so this is what it was like the day before I got abstinent. And, you know, even before I started picking up the food, there was always something wrong with my mind. Um, I remember being four years old, standing at my grandfather's balcony, just thinking, if I jump, all my problems are going to be over. But my next thought was, but who's going to show up at my funeral? And um, that was the mind that I had as a kid. And I remember, you know, fantasizing about suicide and fantasizing about going to jail so that I could have three meals a day and it would be served to me and I would be in control. And um, I remember when my best friend got cancer, you know, my first thought was I wish that was me um, because I knew that he would lose weight. And uh, that was the mind I had. And, you know, I come from a, a... pretty hard childhood Um, I saw things I shouldn't have saw I felt things I shouldn't have felt and I had to make decisions I probably shouldn't have made and um, you know the first memory I have of childhood my dad is this big guy he threw my older sister up against the wall and he was grabbing her by the chins calling her fat effing pig and um, I jumped on his back and was trying to like he was like a big guy and I was like a tiny little kid and I jumped on his back trying to pry him off her And he grabbed me by the shirt and threw me up against the wall. And I remember looking across the hallway at my mom who was standing in the doorway and just, like, begging for her and screaming for her to help us. And she went into her office and closed the door. And um, I don't say that to, like, blame my mom, but I got to know what's wrong with me. And I have to know, like, why do I do the things that I do and why do I think the way that I think? And um, it says in the AA 12 and 12, you know, in, in step four, that creation gave us instincts for a purpose and um, instincts for sex and for security and to be a member of society. And when we, you know, when we, as addicts, we often exceed the natural function of these instincts, and then our greatest natural assets turn into liabilities. And for me, it was my instinct for security. Like, I just wanted to feel safe, and I didn't have it. Like, that's that's why I say that thing with my dad. I just wanted to feel protected. I just wanted to know I was okay. And um, I didn't have it when I was seven years old. My dad was raging through the house, and I went into my mom's office with her, and we locked the door, and he was pounding on the door, and I said, Mom, we need to leave, and she said, I know, and I said, no, we need to leave tonight, and, um, she left the next day, and they got divorced when I was seven, and, um, that's when I started picking up the food, and, um, you know, I couldn't stop picking up the food once I realized what it did for me. Once I realized that the food made me feel safe, I couldn't stop. I was just on and cracking. And, um, you know, I ate over the fear that my dad was going to come and take me. And I ate over the pain that my mom didn't protect me. And um, I hated my mom and I hated my dad. And that fear almost came true. He came to our house one day, and I was, like, nine years old, and he tried to break in, and it was just me and my mom, and we were, like, I was, like, jamming up against the door trying to keep him away, and I I got a baseball bat, and I was, like, swinging it at my dad, and um, I slept with that baseball bat under my bed until I was, like, 15 years old, and, um, you know, so I went to the food, and the food became my mom, and the food became my dad, and the food became my god, and, like, thank God that the food was there, because if, her- if it was heroin, I probably would have injected it. If it, I would have injected it. If it was alcohol, I would have drank it. If it was coke, I would have snorted it. Like, anything that made me feel safe, I would have taken it. Um, but the food was there, and, you know, I became the fat kid in school, and, um, I was the fat kid in school from age 7 until 15, and, you know, like, the fat kid, um, you know, everyone made fun of me. I had all the nicknames that the fat kid has had. Um, you know, I remember once I came to school and everybody was singing the baby beluga song, and I didn't know what they were singing, so I went to the library after school, and I got a book from the library and the children's book, and it said something like, Baby belugas are miniature whales that get up to 3,500 pounds of blubber. And I remember just going home and eating over it. Um, Eating over the shame that everybody was making fun of me. Eating over the shame that I was eating over the shame. And um, eating over the loneliness. You know, it says all over the big book that, you know, as addicts we're just tortured by loneliness. And, um, I would pry myself to bed and just pound myself into the pillow just being like, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? And I would get into the shower in the morning and pretend like I had imaginary scissors and just cut off all the fat that I thought I had on my body. And, um, you know, the food did a weird thing for me because I ate because it made me feel better, um, but then it made me feel fat, then it made me fat, and then people made fun of me for being fat, and then I ate even though it made me feel worse. Um, and I crossed the imaginary line that the big book talks about with alcohol when I was about nine years old. I remember, um, coming back from summer camp, my birthday's in the summer, and, uh, my mom threw, like, this surprise party for me, and I found out, like, hours before that there was going to be a party, and I couldn't handle it. Um, I couldn't handle, like, seeing other people, so she canceled the party, um, but I took the pinata up to my room and beat the pinata open and ate all the candy, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, that's, like, what it was like for me. I just remember thinking, like, I can't stop eating even though I want to. Like, what is wrong with me? Um, you know, so I went through school, and everybody made fun of me, and I hated myself. And um, my sister had connecting rooms with me, and she's three years older. And I used to hear her throwing up next door um, every night. And she would throw up into a bag and take it outside and dump it um, like, in our yard, and she lost weight really quick, and I wanted what she had, and I snuck into her room when I was, like, 11 or 12, and found her diet pills, and, um, you know, they say it's a progressive illness, what started with one slim fast diet pill when I was 11 or 12 years old, um, by the time I was, like, a junior in high school, I was taking 15 pills of hydroxycut a day, I had lost all my weight, I was a three-sport athlete, um, I was starving all day, taking diet pills all day. Um, I would go to practice and then come home and binge and then wake up and then do the whole thing over. And then I started growing up. And, um, you know, it was weird because when I was a junior, I, trans- I transferred high schools and um, I had now lost all my weight and people started liking me. And on the outside, I had it all together. Like I was getting good grades. I was going to this prestigious prep school. Um, I had a girlfriend but on the inside, I still hated myself, and I knew that if I gained all the weight again, people would not like me anymore, so I had a big f u to everyone, and, you know, I never let anybody in, I never let my mom in, because I didn't think that, you know, she was going to protect me again, so that one incident that happened, you know, I said off of your head, like, I'm, I'm never going to let you in again, I never let people in, you know, I never let friends in, I never let people in my relationships in, and, um, You know, I continued in college. I went to five different colleges in four years, just always running, always doing geographics, always just whenever someone would get close to me, I would just pick up and go. I can't handle it. And, um, you know, I ended up in Manhattan when I hit my bottom. And I I took 15 diet pills a day for seven years straight, which is like 40,000 diet pills. And um, if anyone knows, taking diet pills for a long time, um, before they took the ephedra out, Like, I was scratching all the time and I had that burning thing in my throat and I would have to take half a bottle of NyQuil every night just to sleep because my heart was just pounding and I was sweating. And, um, you know, my therapist later said I went into a state of psychosis, which I think I did. I, I started getting paranoid and, you know, I would go days without talking to people. My phone was always off. And, um, I would just order from Grubhub, um, or Seamless Web. Like, I would order food to my apartment, I would tape an envelope outside my apartment with the money in it, because I thought everybody was against me. I thought the government was, I went crazy with the food. Um, and I have other addictions, and it didn't take me out like the food and the diet pills took me out. Like, I lost my mind. And, um... You know, so I was living in Manhattan and I was losing my mind and I was failing out of college and I couldn't be in a relationship for more than a week and my family never knew where I was and I hadn't spoken to my dad in 10 years and I was suicidal and I hated myself and I had no higher power and um, I started going from the Whole Foods on the Lower East Side to the one in Union Square to the one in Midtown to the one on the Upper West Side to the one in Harlem just binging, 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 binging. And then I'd take the subway down to my 24-hour gym, and I'd calculate on my phone how many thousands of calories I just binged. And then I'd go to the gym, and I'd work it off for like five, six hours. It was a full-time job. That's why I was failing out of college. I was literally in the gym for five, six hours a day. Um, And I would take the subway back to... I was living in Williamsburg at the time, and I, I would take the subway back. And I remember I would have my head down... And I would look around me, and it seemed like everybody around me was in a relationship. Everyone around me, like, knew how to talk to people. Everyone around me had the key to life that I just wasn't born with, and I I felt like an alien. Um, Like, I would see people talking at Starbucks on the weekends, like, chatting. And I didn't know, I didn't, I just didn't understand how people interacted. For me, it was, I just lived in a world with food. How was I going to get more, and how was I going to get rid of it? And what were you thinking about me? I didn't think about other people. It didn't even cross my mind ever to think about other people. It was just about me and the food, and how can I get more so I don't have to deal with my thinking? And um, I remember I would walk up the Williamsburg, like I would see this, you know, the thing for Bedford Avenue, the sign, and I would have the same thought every night, you failed again every single freaking night, you failed again. Like, every morning, I would wake up and say, today's going to be different, and every night, I would come back to Bedford, and I would say, you failed again. And, um, a string of, like, bottom after bottom after bottom after bottom. Um, I made a, I made a decision I was going to kill myself, and I was like, it's over. Like, I literally have nothing to live for. Like, I don't see the future. I don't know how I'm going to make it past 27 years old. Um, I'm just going to end it now and, like, save everyone, the whatever. So I went back to my mom's house in Long Island, and uh, she wasn't home, and I binged my way through her house because I was going to have one last binge. And I'm literally, like, the binge of all binges, like, the dream binge. Like, I'm eating all the ice cream out of the freezer. Things are going in the microwave. Things are in the oven. Um, Like, the mad scientist thing is going on. Like, I was just (laughs) going for it. This was This was in December. So, I went through all the leftover Halloween candy. I went through all my mom's chocolate women's vitamins. Like, I was just... I was just like... It was on and cracking. And um, I, I went through her pantry. And, um... I went through her pantry and the OA 12 and 12 fell out. And, you know, I... I I don't know if I ever knew about OA at the time, Um, but some power that was greater than myself, like, helped me pick it up. Um, And it was the first time, I think, in my life that I felt a power that was greater than me. And um, I went into my room, and I closed the door, and I opened the first page, and it says something like, We of Overeaters Anonymous have found in this fellowship a way to recover from the disease of compulsive overeating. And, um, you know, I used to hear people say, like, yeah, that song changed my life or that book changed my life. And that that was never my story, but that sentence really changed my life. Um, Because for the first time, you know, I knew that I wasn't alone and I knew that there was hope. And um, I still have that book, and I still read that sentence, and I'm just so amazed by it. And, um, you know, the next month I went to my sister's apartment, and I said, Michelle, I'm a compulsive overeater, and I can't stop binging, and I can't stop purging, and I can't stop taking diet pills, and I hate myself, and I'm going to kill myself, and um, I need help. And she said, you have to go to OA and um she printed out like all the new york city meetings for me and gave them to me and um you know the next day I went to a meeting on the upper west side and it's funny I went to that meeting 6 years ago and I went back 2 years ago and I spoke at that meeting and um people who were at my first meeting came up to me and you know they said we didn't think you were going to make it and it's like the big book you know complete transformation of character and, you know, I started going to those meetings, and I would go to the park in Williamsburg every morning. And um, it was the first time that I started feeling some kind of power that was greater than me um, in my life. And I was just like, I had a little bit of hope. That's really all I had. My life was a mess. Um, I, like, I didn't have anything going for me, but I had, like, a little bit of hope. And I would go to that park in the morning and just stare at the bridge and stare at New York City and just, like... I would have hope, I had hope, and, um, you know, a miracle brought me out to L.A., and um, it took me two years to get a sponsor, and, you know, I went to meetings for two years, and I was so scared of people, I would come late, and I would leave early, and I never talked to anyone, and I never shared, really, unless people called on me, which I hated, and, um You know, I was just so disconnected from reality, but I would come to these meetings and I would feel safe. You know, that instinct that I had all my life just to feel secure, like I felt it when I could just get to a meeting. I would go home and I would binge my brains out, but for that one hour I just felt okay. And, um, you know, it took me two years, and I uh, I would write my shares on index cards after two years of being in a program, because I was so scared of what everybody else thought of me. And um, I'd write my shares, you know, today I have some hope, and I would share it. And um, that's how it started. That's, like, literally how my journey started, like, sharing my shares from index cards. And um, I kept hearing, like, you got to get a sponsor, you got to work the steps. And, um, you know, I started sharing, like, I need a sponsor. And this lady came up to me. You know, I started going to those 8,000 Sunset meetings every morning, and this lady shared twice in one week, and she came up to me, and she was like, I'll temporarily sponsor you. And in my head, I was like, no. And in my heart, I, I was like, yes. And I said yes. And it was the same power that helped me bend over and pick that book up. It was the same power that told me to say yes to this woman. And, you know, we say in program, find someone who has what you want. You know, when I came into program, I don't know... What I want is to keep binging and purging and be skinny and have my cake and eat it, too. I don't know what I want. Um, so what I tell people is, you know, find someone who you can be honest with. And this woman who shared twice in a week, I heard how crazy she was. And um, I knew... You know, I knew that she could handle it. And that's what I needed. That's what I needed. And... um you know, because what I wanted, my list, was I wanted a straight guy who was in the entertainment industry, who drove a nice car, who was married. And I got a woman who was twice my age, who was not my race, who was not from where I was from, who didn't even have a car. Like, everything that I wanted was not what I got. And, you know, she worked the 12 steps with me and completely saved my life. Like... I've had angels come into my life over these last six years, but, like, she is on another level. Um, And I'll text her once in a while, and I'll I'll just say, you know, just to remind you, you saved my life. And, um, you know, she since said, you know, she heard me speak at Kitchen Sink a couple of years ago, and she had never heard me speak before, and she said, you know, her whole story was that she never had kids, and she was too late to have kids. And she said, "I, I never had a kid, but, you know, seeing you like this makes me feel like I did okay, and, um, you know, it's such a two-way street how this thing works, and, you know, so I got this sponsor, and we started working the steps, and the first week that, you know, I put pen to paper, I got abstinent, and I haven't binge, purged, eaten flour or sugar since, and, um, you know, I had to see what was wrong with me. You know, they, they say steps one through three are about clearing up. You know, four through nine are about cleaning up. And ten through twelve is about growing up. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, step one, I thought I was just a food addict. I thought, you know, it was all about the food. And for me, like, I do have a physical allergy. I can totally relate to what it says in the big book. When I put flour or sugar inside my body... I turn into an alcoholic and I will go to any lengths to get more and I won't stop until my disease wants to stop. You know, when I put flour and sugar inside my body, I have a chemical reaction and I can't stop eating it. Um, And it's like they say, you know, if someone's allergic to grapes and it makes them break out in a horrible allergic reaction, they just don't eat grapes. But for me, I'm allergic to these things And, you know, it says in the big book, 100% abstinence and sobriety is not enough because I have this allergy that's coupled with a mental obsession that tells me that the flour and the sugar is going to save my life. So I have a mind that's telling me that the thing that is actually killing me and making me break out in an allergic reaction is going to save me. And I listen to it time and time and time and time again um, because this time is going to be different because this time I can handle it, because it's been a year, and now I can have it, Um, because maybe I don't have this thing, because I need it, because I want more, um, and I listen to it. And, you know, if my mind is going to lie to me about the food, maybe my mind is going to lie to me about every single part of my life. Don't talk to your dad for ten years. Kill yourself, you're a fat piece of shit. Sorry for cursing. Um, you're never going to get the job you want you're never going to get the car you want you're never going to be in a relationship you're not okay look at everybody else around you everybody has more than you and my problem is I listen to these thoughts and um, it says in the big book that this disease is centered in my mind you know the liquor the food it's just a symptom you know lack of power is my dilemma for me lack of power to think properly is my dilemma I don't know how to think properly I have a mind that talks to me and it tells me lies and it wants to kill me and I listen to it and that's insanity Um, and the more I watch my thoughts the more I see that I'm insane and the whole basis of you know step two why am I going to how can I come to believe that a power greater than me it's going to restore me to sanity if I don't truly accept that I'm insane. And, you know, it says in the literature, it's easy for us to admit that we have a problem with the substance, but it's a little more difficult to admit that we're mentally ill. Um, And the more I watch my thinking and the more I watch my thoughts, the more I see, wow, my mind really is warped and it's never going to get back to, you know, how it should be. And, um... In step two, I start to talk to something that isn't my mind for the first time. I thought whatever was on in here was the truth and I would listen to it. And in step two, I start to build a relationship with something that isn't me. And I don't have to name it, it's just something that isn't me. Um, It's the water that I went to in Williamsburg, it's that power that helped me bend over and pick up the book, it's that power that helped me say yes to that sponsor. I start to talk to that power because when I'm talking to something that isn't me, I feel better because this disease is centered in my thinking. It's centered in my mind. So if I'm not listening to my mind, I'm not in my disease. So I start talking to something that isn't me and I start to get results and, you know, people would say, get on your knees and pray to this thing. And I'd say, you're effing crazy because I'm a Jew or because I'm this or because I'm that. All of these preconceived notions that had to get smashed. So I start to pray on my knees, and I see that, wow, I'm flooded with peace when I do that. Maybe everything that my mind is telling me is not true. And then in step three, I turn my will and my life over to this power. Um, and it's for, for me, it's like I'm either in love or I'm in fear. I'm a pretty, I'm an animal. I'm a basic thing and if I'm in fear I'm listening to my thinking and I'm probably going to end up in the food and if I'm in love I'm following my heart and the language of my heart and that power that's in my heart that tells me to do things that make me feel better you know like not go to law school and move out to LA even though I didn't know anyone or to say yes to that sponsor or you know to go to a meeting or to pick up that book and um You know, step three for me is making a decision daily to not listen to my mind and to listen to my heart. And the more I work the steps, the more I rewire my mind so that I can see or that I can feel what is really being said in my heart. Um, Because when I came in, my mind was so loud that I couldn't hear what was in my heart. I didn't even know that I had all the answers. I didn't know... All my life I was looking for everything outside of me, you know. I went to Israel in recovery and, you know, I said, all right, I'm at the wall, now I'm going to have a spiritual experience. And I got down on my knees and I said, God, help me have a spiritual experience because my mind's telling me that I should. And um, I ended up in the emergency room with pneumonia and um, that's where my spiritual experience was. I don't know. Nothing outside of me. There's no holy wall. There's no piece of food. There's no drink. There's no drug. There's no girl. There's no Facebook like. There's no Facebook status. There's no, there's no job status. There's nothing outside of me that's going to make me feel okay in my heart at the end of the day. It's an inside job, and it has to come from me, um, and it has to come from a power greater than me. And, you know, four and five, it's like I I thought that I was a compulsive overeater because of what everybody else did to me, you know. I was never the good-looking kid in school. Everybody picked on me, you know. I had a dad who beat me. I had a mom who my mind told me wasn't protecting me. My sister always made fun of me. Kids in school made fun of me, you know. I never got the good grades. I never had the girlfriend, you know. I, I didn't go to the college I wanted. It's not fair, And in four and five, I get to see my part, and I get to see I'm a compulsive overeater because I don't know how to deal with life on life's terms. Um, I'm a compulsive overeater because when I get stopped at a traffic light, I go back to those instincts from when I was a five-year-old jumping on my dad's back, and my mind tells me that I'm not okay because I'm going to get fired, and uh, I'm going to be homeless. You know, because that's where my mind goes, because I have worked instincts. You know, like it says, you know, these instincts that are totally misdirected now have turned into huge liabilities, and it's usually my instinct for security. Um, More and more it's becoming my instinct for sex. Not like sex, like sex, sex, but like being in a relationship, because I think that that's going to solve everything now, Um, and it's not. You know, so four and five, I see the patterns. I see what I do to other people because of my misdirected instincts for security. I see how I hurt people. I see how I push people away. I see how I never gave my mom another chance to love me. I see how I didn't talk to my dad for ten years because I didn't give him the benefit of the doubt when he said he changed. I see how, you know, when people hurt me, I cut them out of my life forever. I see how I don't know how to express myself in relationships. Um, And in 6 and 7, you know, at this point it's not about the food anymore. It's about changing who I am. You know, 6 and 7 is really one of the most important steps for me because it's about asking God to change all of me, not just the food. You know, help me be a better person. Um, and eight and nine is probably the most transformational steps in my life. Um, you know, this sponsor, she, she used to say, why don't you start praying for the willingness to pray for your dad? And I said, uh, don't tell me to pray for my dad unless you had the dad that I had. And um, I kept hearing that. And eventually one day I started praying for the willingness to pray for my dad. And um, a couple months later I started praying for my dad. And um, a couple months later, I flew back to New York, and I met my dad after not seeing him for 10 years. And I said, Dad, I cut you out of my life for 10 years, and it's a pattern I do in my relationships. And I don't want to do it anymore, so how can I make it up to you? And um, he said, well, I'd like to start having a relationship with you. You know, so then months after that, we started having a phone relationship. And then he called me about a year and a half ago, and he said, I'd love for you to come visit me. And I don't remember the last time I spent a weekend with my dad, but I, I felt that power in my heart say, yes, go. So I went, and I flew back to New York, and I spent like four days with my dad. And um, it was pretty bad. Um, and he was in his disease. And I, was, and I would go to the bathroom every meal, and I'd be like, God, you tricked me. Why am I here like, this is horrible. Like, what is the point? How can I be of service? And um, on the last, second to last day, my dad said, do you want to go to a meeting? And we went to a meeting, and at the end they said, would any newcomers like to share? And my dad raised his hand, and he said, you know, I'm a compulsive overeater, and I think I've been in denial my whole life. And um, my dad drove me to the airport the next day, and he said, you know, I think I'm going to start going to those meetings, and I wanted to thank you. And uh, my dad called me a couple weeks ago, and he said, you know, I don't have a God yet, but the room's my higher power. And that's, you know, that's what program does for me. And, um, you know, about two years into abstinence, I went back to New York, and I, it was Christmas Eve, and I went to the St. Patrick's Cathedral with my mom. And I said, Mom, I never, I never acknowledged all the great things you did for me. And I did. And um, she broke out to, into tears on the pew, and she just said, I'm so proud of you. And then um, me and my sister, every Christmas Eve, we go around Columbus Circle and just walk around. And um, we walked around, and I said, you know, I always blamed you for not being an older sister for me, but I never realized that I was never a younger brother for you and um, she raised her hands into the sky and she's like, is this my amends? And I was like, yeah. And, um, you know, that (laughs) night I I celebrated the holidays with my mom and my sister and I overheard my sister say to my mom, that amends from David was the best gift I ever could have gotten. And my mom said, yeah, me too. And, um, you know, step 10, 11, and 12 is about growing up and it's about the fact that I still have a mind that talks to me And, you know, by the time I'm at step 10, my mind is a lot different. It doesn't tell me to go to the food anymore, because I know that that doesn't work. But, you know, my best friend, I was just back in New York, and he told me uh, he's having a kid. And the first thought was just, like, so happy for him. And then I'm walking back to my apartment, and, um, you know, my mind said, you're never going to have a kid. And it said, you're going to be alone for the rest of your life and it started talking to me. You know, it found its opening, and it creeped in, and I started believing it, that old, self-talking mind. And um, I went to St. Patrick's Cathedral, and I went to the front, and there was like a mass going on, and I got on my knees, and I just said, God, can you protect me from my mind? Because my mind's trying to hurt me again. And um, what I've learned in Step 11 is that it's not about program prayers, it's not about how many times can I say the serenity prayer, it's about how am I praying with the language of my heart, you know, one prayer with my real pain, with the real language of my heart, is a million times stronger than 3,000 prayers of all the program prayers that we know, and, um, you know, St. Patrick's Cathedral, it's like surrounded by candles, and I got up, and I started lighting candles for all my sponsees. And um, I just lit a candle for myself, and I said, God, can you help the you know, help the fire of service keep burning in me? And um, I don't know who said that. That's not me. And it's so funny, because I'm a Jew, and the holiest place for me, the holiest place for me on earth is St. Patrick's Cathedral. And, um... You know, what I've learned about spirituality and about, you know, just my mind and open mindedness, it's like I have to have my own experience in this program. I went to Israel and I felt nothing. And I go to St. Patrick's Cathedral and I feel everything in my heart. And I have to do what works for me. I have to have an abstinence that works for me. I have to call people that work for me. I have to say prayers. That work for me you know because there's so much information out here but what works for me How, when I do certain things how do I feel doing them and um, you know I went back to a pew and I sat down and I went on Facebook and um, I get to see that that's spirituality too God is in Facebook God is in Facebook just as much as God is in my prayers on my knees at the St. Patrick's Cathedral Because God is everything or God is nothing. And when I truly believe that God is everything, I can take the cab home and I can look into the driver's eyes and know that he is God. And that's what happens. And I can go back to Williamsburg and see that sign and break out into tears and then have a guy who can't lift his suitcase and say, here, let me help you and lift it for him and then have him tell me I'm an angel. That's what happens when I believe that God is everything or God is nothing. And um, just to talk a little bit more about step 11, um, you know, my mind is crazy. So I have a huge, like, yoga practice. But, you know, scientists are proving now that spirituality is scientific, which is super awesome. You know, Harvard's coming out with all these studies. That prayer and meditation literally change the gray matter in our brains. And if this disease is centered in my mind, then I should probably start taking measures to change it. And um, that's why prayer and meditation is so important to me. And um, step 12, it's like, you know, it started with the program commitments. started with setting up chairs and being the timer and speaking at meetings and having sponsees. And um, I do all that. And, I, you know, I'm of dedicated service in this program. I really am. Um, I really go to any lens to help my sponsees and, you know, just to be of service. But how am I practicing these principles in all my affairs? You know, it says in the, in the AA 12 and 12 that step 12 is about the joy of living. Um, I don't come to program to endure recovery. I come here so that I can go out there and have a life that's beyond my wildest dreams. And when I practice spiritual principles that are, be, that are in the 12 steps, I get to go out and live a life that's beyond my wildest dreams. And, like, for the holidays, putting up a boundary with my family is a spiritual principle. That when I do it, my life gets so much better, and everybody's lives around me get so much better. And, um, you know, step 12, there's a spiritual teacher, and he says, you know, the unspoken secret is that Everything that we're given, in whatever capacity we're given it, we're given it so that we can give it away. And um, I know for me, if I hoard onto my recovery, if I say, you know, I'm not going to answer that call or I'm not going to go to that meeting, everything that I have will disappear. And, um, you know, I go to a lot of meetings and I talk a lot about how great life is, and I don't do that to be in my ego. Um I do that because I know without a doubt that everything in my life today is a result of having a higher power. And um, that's how I stay humble. You know, realizing that God is in everything, in my success at work, in my relationships, in my friendships, in my family, that keeps me connected. And, um, you know, I just want to say, I owe my life to this program. The food obsession has been completely lifted. And um, I really do have a life that's beyond my wildest dreams today. And, you know, they say this program is like a its a million-dollar program, but we get it a nickel at a time. And um, sometimes I don't think it's working. And sometimes I don't think I'm, you know, rich enough. But if I keep coming back, if I keep collecting my nickels, I get to see that I'm really rich. And um, I think that's all I got, so thank you. <laughs>